Great. Thanks, Kerry. Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, just uh, heads up if you're wondering where Ellie is. Um, well, last week she was away preaching at a women's conference. My iPad is doing something silly. Sorry. There we go. Um, last week she was away preaching at a women's conference. Uh, this week uh, our kids have been thrown up all weekend. So uh, and last night she she was struck with it. So she's home, not feeling well. So yeah. But anyway, hey, let me pray, just as we, uh, as we unpack the word this morning. Yeah, Father, we just thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that, Father, you are not a distant God, but, Father, you are a very present God. We thank you that you are a heart-to-heart God. I thank you that you give us a new heart and then you speak to us and reveal your heart to us. We thank you that in the person of Jesus, you have shown us your heart. We thank you that in the person of Jesus, you have shown us your nature. Yeah, We thank you, Jesus, for what you have done on our behalf. We thank you that you have made a way into a new covenant, a new and living way. We thank you that we are being transformed into your image and likeness through your spirit. And we thank you for what you're doing in us, and we thank you for what you're doing through us. Mm. Yeah, amen. Amen. Yeah. So um, this passage in, in Corinthians, um, there was um, one more verse. <laughs> Sorry, it was the key verse. It says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're currently doing this um, series called um, Bearing Witness, and uh, the whole idea here is that, that we, are, we are called to bear witness to the image of God, that, that this is the original vocation of the people of God, is to bear witness to the image of God. We are image bearers, um, and that actually as image bearers, we are, we are uh, called to flourish under the redeeming rule and reign of Jesus. Um, and we're using this word flourish uh, rather than words like prosperity or things like that. Because I just want to pull us away from maybe some old ideas we've had around uh, things like, you know, from the prosperity gospel and things like that, that, that sort of elevate what our kingdom ideas, but then make it all about ourselves. Whereas the whole idea of flourishing is that we only flourish in community, that, that we actually cannot be a witness to the kingdom on our own. That the gospel was not about individuals being wealthy, healthy, and uh, you know happy, but it's actually about the community of God flourishing together, and in doing so, bearing witness to this new and living way in our communities. So we are supposed to be an alternate community, a different community. We are supposed to look different from the world around us. Uh, as we flourish under his redeeming rule and reign. And, and I think, I mean, if we're sp- to speak to, you know, things that are currently happening even in our own society, um, we will probably say that, that, 
that there are things that are happening even in our own country that we can probably say, look, this is evidence of an increasingly secular society. Um, and uh, even with some bills that are, that are uh, about to be passed recently, uh, you know, coming up in, in government. Um, but the, so there's, I think when, when the church finds itself in a place of comfort within its society, uh, what has traditionally happened is churches start to define themselves by how they are different from each other. So churches, you know, and, and what happens is often we, have, we can have a little bit of a culture within uh, Christianity where, where churches are setting themselves up against each other and then people are choosing churches based on preference uh, and all of these sorts of things. But, but what happens when a society becomes increasingly secular, we are all forced to define ourselves by how different we are, not from each other, but how different we are from the world around us. And so this is what I think is happening in our world. And we, we are supposed to, to be modeling a flourishing way. In the midst of a chaotic society, we are modeling a flourishing way. So, um, so when, when we talk about flourishing, we're talking about like a total reformation of our heads, hands, and hearts. This is what the gospel is. It's a total upheaval of, of how we see. It's a total upheaval of the perspective we have on the world. And so human flourishing is a key uh, theme woven throughout the entire Bible, and this theme brings context and, and light to the many stories of God's relationship to humanity uh, in Scripture, and, and also humanity's failure to flourish outside of God's will. So when we're outside of God's will, we see through Scripture that, that society fails to flourish. Uh, and in turn, we also fail to be a witness to the image of God uh, when, we're, when we're not flourishing under the redeeming rule and reign of Jesus. So this morning, I, I want to talk a little bit about what it means to actually be formed uh, and transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, to actually live as flourishing image bearers uh, and, and being deeply formed by the work and person of Jesus. So, so we just read, as we walk in the Spirit, we are being formed and transformed into the image and likeness of Christ with an ever-increasing glory. So this is a process. You know, we, we have been resurrected, we are being resurrected, and one day we will be fully resurrected. We, are, we have been transformed, we are being transformed, and one day we will be fully transformed. So this is the pro, a process. We are, we are growing into the image and likeness of Christ. We are being formed into the story of Jesus, no longer formed by our old story, but formed into the story of Jesus. And says so, and we all with unveiled faces reflect or bear witness to the Lord's glory. So, as we are being transformed, we are bearing witness to the Lord's glory and being transformed into His, into his image with an ever increasing glory. Uh, Rich Beloda makes this observation about Christian discipleship. He, he says, The troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without ever being deeply formed by Christ. See, when we are deeply committed to Christian culture rather than committed to being deeply formed by Christ, we are missing the point. So we are deeply formed by Christ when we bring our whole self to Him and bring our whole lives under the redeeming rule and reign of Jesus. So last week we looked at Colossians 3 and this idea of putting off and putting on. And we explored what, what is it that we need to put off and what do we need to put on? And how do, we, how do we do that? How do we put off and how do we put on? 
Um, I, I really love Peter um, McHugh's thoughts around, around some of this, and he says that, uh, you know, when you squeeze an orange, you should get orange juice. When you squeeze a lemon, you should get lemon juice. And when you squeeze a Christian, you should get Jesus juice. See, we are only formed and deeply formed in the tough stuff of life. See, it's only when we arrive in a crisis that we actually discover what is on the inside of us. And so these areas that when we're squeezed and Jesus' juice doesn't come out, these are good pointers for us. These are the unredeemed areas of our lives, the unpurified areas. And so these areas, when we are squeezed, they come out in emotions, don't they? And ultimately, our emotions are good pointers, but they are very, very poor masters. Our emotions, and especially our hysterical ones, are pointers to places that are yet to be put off. In 1 Peter 1, uh, verse 13 to 22, we have this passage about holiness. And the interesting thing there is that we generally probably define holiness as the things that we abstain from. I become more holy when I don't do X, Y, Z. But actually, in this passage on holiness and Peter, Peter gives it a double edge. He says it's not just about what we are putting off, but what we are putting on. And then he ends it with this. He says, now that you have been purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Listen to this. The holiest people are the ones who love well. The holiest people are the ones who love well. If we are to follow Peter's train of thought here, he is saying that, no, the holiest people are not the ones who abstain from everything. He does add that in there, but he says the purpose of this is love. The holiest people are the ones who love well. So the idea of putting off, Paul often uses the language of, of crucifying. Um, we are to crucify our old nature, our old selfish desires, so that we can be resurrected in Christ. And so when we talk about things being redeemed or areas of our life that are yet to be redeemed, um, the idea is this, is that nothing is redeemed that hasn't yet gone through some type of death. There cannot be resurrection without death. So if we want to be, live a resurrected life and know the power of his resurrection, it looks like, the process looks like death. Nothing is redeemed that hasn't gone through some type of death. And usually the death is not about the thing, but the thing under the thing. So sometimes the death is actually the death of our ego, or it's the death of our pride, it's the death of, death of our self-preservation, it's, it's the death of our control. As we, as we come to this idea of being formed or transformed, and, and maybe we've been squeezed in some area and Jesus' juice isn't coming out, we, we, we've got this choice here. Do we either bury this, or hide it, or do we crucify it? See, emotions are good pointers, they are poor, but, they are, but they are poor masters. And so when we are squeezed and the Jesus juice doesn't come out, do we hide it in shame, 
Do we bury it with guilt or do we crucify it with Jesus so that it can now be a redeemed thing? Now it's bearing witness to Jesus. Now it's bearing witness to his image. But when it's unredeemed, guess what image people are getting? They're getting the image of our past. Because those hysterical emotions are actually the image of our past. They are not the image of Jesus. Hysterical is historical. So when it's hysterical, it's it's, it's bearing witness to the image of our past, not the redeemed life that you have now been, been resurrected into in Christ. So we can either bury it or we can crucify it. So last week we looked at Genesis and we saw that Adam and Eve in their shame and guilt tried to cover themselves and hide. And, and, and here's the crazy thing. Uh, often the best place to hide from God is in church. Have you ever thought of that? So we can hide with all of our knowledge. We can hide with all of the doing that we might want to do. We can hide with all of the motions of churchianity. Put on the image of a good Christian. See, we hide with the mass of doing, doing, doing. We hide with the mass of look at what I know. But a life deeply formed by God is a life that is deeply intimate with God. A life deeply formed by God is a life deeply vulnerable with God and those around us. A life deeply formed by God is a life that is deeply humble and deeply honest. A life that is deeply formed by God is a life that is deeply responsive to God. I've been reading um, Peter McHugh's new book, um, Radically Restored to Oneness with God, and and he makes some observations um, about the scenario with Adam and, Adam and Eve. And I just wanted to read just a little bit um, of that, just because I think it's really helpful. Uh, so he's just um, coming out of a reading from uh, the parable of the prodigal son. He says this, It was compassion, love, and action which motivated the father's patience, excitement, and embracing of this wayward son back into the family, back into oneness through a complete restoration. No questions asked, no guilt. The prodigal didn't even get to give his rehearsed repentance speech. No shame or condemnation from the father because compassion is our only appropriate response to sin. In James 2.13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. On the other hand, the older brother is still captive to the consequences of judgment that come from oneness being broken. He, like most of us at times, has not fully grasped that in his father's house, love, compassion, and the restoration of oneness are the supreme values. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, God's compassion and mercy were evident. His love covered their sin by by providing garments to cover their felt need of nakedness. He did not storm into the garden motivated by anger that offered accusations and punishment. Instead, he entered asking questions to enable self-awareness and personal responsibility to open the door to repentance. The first question, where are you, was not geographical in intent. He knew where they were. God is all-knowing and omniscient. 
He was asking where they were relationally, hoping their self-awareness would result in an acknowledgement of their sin and desire to set things right. However, their response was that they were afraid of the one who had always shown them love and kindness. God's second question, who told you that, was motivated by a desire for an honest conversation to lead to the door being opened through personal responsibility for their sin, resulting in forgiveness and some level of restoration. He was offering mercy and compassion. Even in their banishment, he was acting with mercy. If they were to eat from the tree of life, then mankind would have become immortal with sin at our core. So Adam and Eve were removed from the garden by God as he knew that would send a second Adam, Jesus, to restore oneness. So if we want to be deeply formed by God, we have to respond to his invitations. And sometimes our emotions are actually just invitations. Invitations to a conversation with a God who wants to restore us. And he wants to restore us into the image and likeness of his son so we can be a witness to who he is in a world that desperately needs to see him. See, sometimes we actually need to be able to sit with someone that can draw these things out of us. This is where a counselor is good. I, I, think, I think we actually need to, I, I, personally, I think Christians should be the most for counseling. <laughs> you know, so, so often we, we can put on, on this, you know, sort of mask of like, you know, faith or, you know, if you're using the word faith to mask having to, to actually deal with deep emotions, that, that has not been restored and transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's hiding. It's burying the things. See, when I go to my counselor, I'm not asking him to fix me. Jesus is the answer. We know that. What I'm doing is I'm asking him to expose me. And that's courage. Bearing those, those emotions and just saying I've got faith, that's not courage, that's cowardice. Courage is saying expose me. Expose what is not like you, Jesus. And then with our lives fully surrendered to Jesus, we bring our whole lives into the open to bear witness to the kingdom, to reflect his image into the world. And as we do this, we are partnering with God to see what was lost, restored. His image being displayed on the earth, and Jesus is starting to get what he paid for. And we do this as we bring our whole selves and engage in holistic discipleship. And so I want to give us um, three words this morning. Um, and if you're doing the, the study uh, in the group, you would have heard these three words. But we've got a slide that we can chuck up there. Um, so these three words are uh, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, uh, and orthopathy. All right, and so these are big words. I want to explain them real quick. So orthodoxy uh, is this idea of right belief. Uh, and, so, uh, and this is really important. 
right belief is really important. And if we are to say right belief, that, that infers that there is also wrong belief. I mean, if we want to participate in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, it, it wouldn't work if we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> so, so this is important. Yeah? So orthodoxy is important, that we have right belief. Uh, and we have creeds and we have scripture that help us get locked in on, on right belief. Uh, then we have orthopraxy, which is, is this idea of right action. That actually the Christian faith is not just about believing the right thing, it's about living a life that demonstrates the right thing. And so orthopraxy is, is this idea of right practice. It's the right actions, which means that there is also wrong actions. And the, the third one, which is probably the one that uh, we don't talk about enough, is orthopathy. Orthopathy is this idea of having right feelings or right affections. Now, for some of us, we, we may overemphasize one area or we may completely disregard one area and say that it's not, not relevant, or we don't need to talk about that one, or we don't need to, to uh, deal with that one. But the point is this. If we don't bring all of those and live them out in balance, we will actually be an out-of-balance Christian. We won't be formed in a holistic way as, as a whole disciple, and an emotionally whole disciple. That's really important, an emotionally whole disciple. Um, Rich Veloda made these observations. He said, in some conservative tra uh, traditions, we've got a slide for this as well. In some conservative tra uh, traditions, transformation equals getting the right theology in one's head while overlooking the, the inner work God wants to do. In some progressive trans uh, traditions, transformation looks like right action and engagement within the world, but often at the expense of personal humility and mercy. And in some charismatic and Pentecostal traditions, transformation can look like getting the right experience, but without the deeper work of loving well and exploring our inner worlds. See, I think if we, if we define spiritual maturity just by what we know or just by what we do, but disregard our affections, we are in grave danger of living out 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. If you're not sure what that says, it says this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, I could know all of the right things. Orthodoxy, I could have that thing locked up, locked down, like I know, like I know all the right things. You know, I think maybe it was last week I said, you know, like, you, you, you can believe all of the, you can have orthodoxy locked down and not be a witness to the image of God. 
See, I could know all the right things. I could debate you for hours on all sorts of things. I could prove that I'm right in so many different ways. But if I am restricted in my affection, guess what Paul says? I am just like a clanging cymbal. That's what we sound like. Have you ever noticed how obnoxious a clanging cymbal is? See, I could do all the right things. I could have faith and cast out demons. I could live a restrained and and disciplined life. But if I don't have love, I've gained nothing. You know, the whole, like, clanging cymbal thing, like, sometimes that's what we sound like. I mean, you can be right at the top of your lungs and still be horribly wrong. See, I think bearing witness has less to do with what you know and more to do with how we see See, God is wanting to restore our sight, the way that we see God, the way that we see ourselves and, and others and society. And, and so this idea of orthopathy is actually really important because, because of this. Let, let me put it this way, all right? Our orthopathy or our right affections, love, our right feelings will actually affect how you believe what you believe. And how you believe what you believe is actually more important than just what you believe. See, the right affections will actually affect how you do what you do. Who knows that you can do the right things for the wrong reasons. But you read Matthew 5 through to 7, the the Sermon on the Mount, it's this constant undoing of, like Jesus is going, let's get beneath the surface and see why are you doing what you are doing? Because our motives are actually more important than the thing that you do. Because how we do it be be as witness to the kingdom. How we do it be as witness to who Jesus is. Not just what we do. If it's just about what we do and what we believe, they are two easy formulas that I can do without Jesus. Think about it. Think about, like, there are people out there who, who live very, very disciplined lives without Jesus. You can, you can believe all of the right things and still not know Jesus. But there is one thing that only he can do, and that's give you a new heart. I can't make myself love more. I can't just turn on a switch and say, Michael, you need to have better affection. That is only a work of God. And so the orthopathy part, the the right feelings, the right affections, this idea of love, which is like the pinnacle of all spiritual maturity in Scripture, love, because it's the only thing God can do. 
It's the only thing I can't boast in. The changing of my heart, only he can do that. So it affects how we do what we do. See, Scripture says that God loves a cheerful giver. See, that tells me that God doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. But then Jesus goes, but by the way, nothing rules your heart more than money. <laughs> See, listen, listen, your money response will usually reflect your heart response. So it's interesting, eh? I mean, you can have someone that maybe like believes all the right things, is doing all the right things, but, but, but there's a lack of generosity. There's a lack of compassion and, and a heart for others. See, in the same chapter, um, Paul, that from our reading, Paul, uh, sorry, not chapter, in the same book in, in Corinthians, he says this, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, we've spoken freely to, to you, Corinthians. Our hearts are open wide. It is not our affection, but yours that is restrained. As a fair exchange, I ask you as children, open your hearts also. See, Paul was approached, he's writing to this church, and he's saying, guys, you're... You are restrained in your affections. Your hearts are closed. Open your hearts wide. See, when we are holistically being deeply formed by Christ, we actually take time to listen to our emotions. We take time to consider our affections. We will actually see that love is the highest theology that love is the outcome of being formed and transformed in and through Jesus. So we, we need to ask questions like, what, what is our heart saying? What are your emotions pointing to right now? Because our emotions are giving us constant invitations to pay attention, pay attention to our inner being. They are pointing to areas of our soul that are crying out for home. And we know that home is always found in the heart of the Father. They are pointing to areas that Jesus wants to heal. They are pointing to areas that are yet unredeemed. And so if we, we want to think about this whole idea of, of, of bearing witness to the image of God, A really powerful question to ask is this. How do others experience me? How do others experience me? Now, we can, we've sort of got a few options when it comes to this question. We can, we can be ignorant, just totally ignorant of how people experience us. We can be willfully ignorant. I'm not interested in even knowing how people will experience me. Or we could just be rebellious. I don't care how people will experience me. But if we want to be people that are actually 
reflecting the image of God in our world, this is a question we need to ask. How do people experience me? How do people experience the church? Are we ignorant? Willfully ignorant? Maybe we're just rebellious. Maybe we don't care. Or maybe we're engaging in healthy discipleship and saying, actually, expose me. I don't want to hide this. I don't want to bury it. I want to get Jesus what he paid for. I'm going to invite someone up. He's going to share a bit of his story. Uh, Josh, do you want to come up? You right? This is pretty big for Josh. Um, but uh, Josh and I have been on a journey for a couple of years now. And uh, you have, uh, we meet up just about every week and have coffee. And uh, <laughs> um, it would be fair to say, Josh, do you think that question around how do people experience me uh, initially uh, was a big thing about what we talked about, eh? Yeah, and so I, uh, Josh shared something with me last week, and I said, oh, I really want you to, to share that with the church, but I just think it would be so helpful. And also, I wanted to, like, um, just, like, Josh is someone who has been deeply committed to sitting down with me, and uh, for better or worse, whether he's wanted it or not, <laughs> that sense of expose me. And that has caused Josh to be on a significant discipleship journey over the last couple of years. Now we have coffee and we laugh and chat and there's not really much to... But there have been some quite tense moments, eh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll just yeah. let you share, Josh. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I've absolutely loved, like, sitting down with you every week. Um, I've come from a background where I haven't necessarily sort of, like, felt where, let's say, sharing myself hasn't worked, you know? Um, like, if I was to say I'm feeling like such and such, I would literally, I remember distinctly getting laughed at and being like, like, essentially told that your feelings don't matter. And I'm like, well, actually, my feelings do matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and actually, come to think of it, uh, <laughs> there was one point where, like, a whole bunch of people... Um, from the band actually had an intervention <laughs> um, for me. And I was like, you know, there's no way that you can convince me um, that, uh, that, I'm, that I'm wrong. Um, but one thing that, like, did actually sort of, like, shift the tide was when um, Aaron um, said, your feelings do matter. Yeah. That, was, that one thing made me... Um, made me cry, to be honest, um, and yeah, the whole feeling aspect, and like the author, orthopathy sort of um, issue as well, like when I first showed up to uh, Awaken Church and got on band and stuff like that, um, you know, I was, I was telling people how it was and stuff like that, and I was not thinking about their emotions and stuff like that, and I think that sort of linked to the fact that um, I, I must have sort of like in the background sort of been thinking like if my feelings don't matter, then 
then neither do the ears, you know, because, because feelings don't matter, yeah. you know. Um, so to, and even yesterday, <laughs> when I'm like, ah, oh, there's this other thing that's happening, and ah, um, just the fact that, like, I could actually, that I knew that I had somebody that I could go to and say, this is what's happening, this is what I'm feeling, it's, I'm feeling all sorts of crappy emotions, um, but, like, the fact that I knew that I could go to you and, and talk to you about it and have the feelings heard um, is, is incredible. So I think um, that my journey, let's say, in the orthopathy stuff, um, that's big for me. Um, sure. And there was even one point where I apologized to the band um, for being so... Um, Yeah, but Straight up. <laughs> it, it, it would be fair to say that being right was your highest value. Would that be right? That was big time important yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 And that's um, changed now, eh? I'm adjusting. <laughs> uh, that was cool. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Josh. <laughs> um, I mean, part of why I wanted Josh to come up is, as well is I think it's important for people to see and know uh, uh, this person isn't who he used to be. And I, I think many people would attest to that, that people experience Josh very differently than they used to. Um, and I think that's really beautiful. And that's God at work in his heart through discipleship. But the journey hasn't been me arguing with him about who, what's right and what's wrong. The journey has been a journey of the heart. And now he is a totally different person. And, and I feel really proud of you, Josh. I really do. And uh, honestly, uh, and I think Josh would be all right with me saying this, but well, you can tell me after, but anyway. Uh, honestly, I've had, I had people going, why do you bother with him? You know, because he's just so mean to everyone and so blunt and so rude. And, and my response has always been this, but every Wednesday he turns up and, he, he, and in many, many ways, and you've said this as well, like, tell me, tell me how I'm seeing this wrong. Expose me. And that has been just a really beautiful journey of, of discipleship. Um, and and I feel really proud, actually, Josh, actually, just in the sense that, you know, because we're, we're moving, actually, to present you to this church and say, uh, he is not who he used to be, and he, is, um, he has grown into a significantly uh, great young man, and so, yeah. <laughs> On that note, you can come up with the band. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so when we think about this whole idea, and the reason why we wanted to use the word flourish rather than other words is because we wanted to pull us out of maybe some different thinking. Um, and 
I, I don't know if you're, if you're on social media at all or that kind of thing, but um, you often see uh, there's this idea of like hashtag blessed. Has anyone seen that? You know, and we sort of like, you know, whenever something good is going on in our world, we, we put it on social media. It's like hashtag blessed. Um, you know, I just bought a new house, hashtag blessed. Or, um, you know, I just got a promotion, hashtag blessed. And, and so uh, what I've noticed is that all of these things that we sort of promote as what it means to be blessed in our world uh, are actually very, very different from the things that Jesus talked about that are blessed. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts out with what's commonly known as the Beatitudes, but he's talking about, like, these are the people that are blessed. These are the hashtag blessed people. Why are they the hashtag blessed people? They are the blessed people because they have been invited into an opportunity to be transformed. He starts off with this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hashtag blessed. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In Proverbs, when we think about this idea of poor in spirit, it says, better to be lowly of spirit with the humble than to divide plunder with the proud. Have we ever thought of, you know, maybe posting on social media, oh, I had to humble myself this week, hashtag blessed. <laughs> but th- th- this, is, this is what flourishing means. Because Jesus is, is humble. You know, in Philippians 2, Paul prays that we would all have the mind of Christ who h- humbled himself. Blessed are the meek, you know, in a world that is fighting for power, status. Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. Not blessed are the ones who are right. Not blessed are the ones who will elevate being right over relationships. No, blessed are the peacemakers. Hmm. For they are called the children of God. I want to be identified as a child of God, as an image bearer. I walk away from that when I fight for power, when I demand my way, when I want to be right, 